0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. God, your Word says that you loved this world so much that you gave, you gave that which was most precious to you, your Son, so that we could have eternal life. Uh, We want to be those that model what it's like to be sons and daughters of our Father. We want to be those that give. And so I pray uh, that in the heart of every man and woman here that you would stir what it is that we are to give. I also pray, my God, in the name of Jesus, for your church in Russia. God, I want to pray that you would fill them with courage, with authority, and with humility. I want to pray, Father God, for the leaders of your church in Russia, that you would give them wisdom and discernment in this time. Uh, that you would be able to help them understand when they need to stand and oppose um, and when they need to submit. God, I cannot, cannot even fathom what those church leaders, what those people must be going through in this time. Uh, God, just because uh, the leadership of that country has chosen to be an aggressor does not mean that every person in that nation is an aggressor. And so, God, I pray that even in our own minds, you would help shape our view um, of your church and your people in Russia.
1: God, we ask for mercy for the people of Ukraine. Um, God, we ask that you would show your kindness to them. God, for the people who are hiding, who are scared, who have no exit route. God, we ask that you would be present with them. God, that you would show up, um, God, in whatever way possible, God, that you would provide both emotional, spiritual, and physical rescue for them, God. Um, God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to those who don't know you in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their hopelessness, God. We ask that you would um, be present in tangible, supernatural ways, God. Um, God, we just ask for your mercy for, um, for lives to be saved, God, for bravery and courage for people who have chosen to fight, um, for this people who, um, yeah, who didn't ask for this, but have chosen to, to rise up. God, um, yeah, we just pray that you would be present, um, present with families who are scared for their loved ones. Um, God, we just, we can't imagine what it's like, um, and, and Lord, we just ask that your hand would be upon this country, this people, as they are dispersed, God, that you would find ways to, to reconnect families, um, that you would find ways um, uh, just to provide um, physically and emotional help for these people who have been through trauma, Lord. Um, God, we thank you that you are in and, and moving through all things, God, and, and we don't understand that, Lord, but we just, um, we submit these people to you, Father, Um, and we want to help however we can, Lord. So, um, yeah, we pray this in your name. Amen.
0: Thank you, guys. We never have done this, um, and uh, I'm just asking you to take this seriously. Next week, uh, what we'll do is we will let you know um, how much money has come through, um, and we will remain connected with these guys to actually be able to Um, show you what that has meant. Neil, go for it.
2: Good morning, guys. I know we've prayed a lot, but um, I want to start this word with asking our Father for help. Father, with so many things happening in our world right now, it could seem like your kingdom is advancing slowly. Lord, with so many things abroad and near that seem troubling, it can seem like you are distant. Lord, this morning, I just want to pray that you would help us encounter the reality of this moment. Lord, your word, uh, your word says that your words will never pass away. Even the heavens and the earth will. And so, Father, this fickle world is nothing compared to your promises. And so, Father, help us to encounter them afresh this morning. Lord, like we've seen already, and I, I thank you that that understanding that what we have in this community and in you is extravagantly beautiful. Lord, I pray that that would continue to magnify in our minds as we study your word. Lord, I pray that you would continue to compel us to understand your love and to share that with others. And Father, I just ask that you'd have your way this morning, that your word would avail much. Amen. <clears throat> Amen, guys. My name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in our 27th week of our sermon series. Yes, I actually counted them. Um, It's a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke, titled Tables and Centers. Today we're going to be picking up right where we left off from last week, uh, in chapter 19, verses 11, and we're going to be covering the parable of the ten minas. Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. It says, while they were listening to this, He went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called on 10 servants and he gave them 10 minas. This is the equivalent of 100 days wages, quite a bit of money. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant. His master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth because I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you do not put in, and you reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Awesome. Fun, fun text today. <sighs> That's right, I like the intense stuff. Um, you knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I don't put in and reaping what I don't sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that way when I came back I could have at least collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take away his mina and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Today's message is titled Basic Multiplication. It will make sense by the end. The problem that we're unpacking today in this text is a very real problem. Uh, it's that it is difficult to stay faithful to the work Jesus calls us to in the face of social and spiritual opposition. Fear and and unbelief can cause us to waste much of our life building with hay and stubble rather than building in the kingdom of God. This is our travel guide for the journey today. We have four points. Uh, I am hopeful and determined to make it through all of them. Uh, We're going to look at why did Jesus tell us this parable. It's there in the text. Uh, We're going to consider what the currency of heaven is, what the idiomatic or symbolic representation of the thing that the king gives to his servants. And we're going to look at the work of King Jesus. Uh, And we're going to look at just practically, simply, how do we multiply what God gives us? So point number one, we're going to look at why. You know, in this, this parable, I just want to identify some things. We have the setting of this, this man of noble birth. This is, this is someone who is royalty, who has come of age, and it's this time to be appointed, but he's leaving where his servants are, and he's going to a distant place for an undefined amount of time. He is, in fact, going to get crowned king, and then he comes back. And while he's away, he calls his servants Okay, we have an example of faithful servants in the text and an example of unfaithful servants in the text. We're going to look at both of those. And then one last thing, you have these subjects who hate him. They form a delegation and and send a message out just to let them know that we do not want you to be king. Um, It's in the text in verse 11. It says... While they were hearing this, and what that refers to is the stories you heard last week, uh, we see the, the, the man who cried out to Jesus for salvation, so much that the audience had to quiet him, and he comes over and rebukes those guys, heals the man by his faith, sets him free. Then we have what I like to call Sniper Jesus. There's a guy off in the tree over there, and he's not calling out to him at all. And he sets his eyes on him and calls him into his kingdom. And it says, while they were hearing this, and as they approached Jerusalem, uh, he told this parable because they thought the kingdom of God would come at once. Uh, that word in the text is parakrima, uh, it means in an instant, forthwith, immediately. And so one of the things he was doing was helping people like us and the hearers of this original word to set our expectations. You see, for some reason, humans have an incredibly hard time adjusting to the timeline of God. Uh, I was literally watching Chosen last night, and um, Matthew asked a question basically about when he was going to get to lead, not Matthew, excuse me, Peter, uh, when he was going to get to lead things, and he says, soon. (laughs) And there's this implied thing, it's like like a thousand years soon, like soon for your dad, or like soon here on earth, Right? So they were impatient. They thought they were right around the corner from Easy Street. You see, the fame of Jesus was growing. And the understanding of his kingship, of his messiahship, was raising. The crowds were swelling. People were believing. And their expectations were once he would fully arrive, he was literally going to overthrow The oppressive government, the the armies that were making their life miserable, and then things were going to get really comfortable for Israel. There's something else here in the text that I just want to point out, you know. There's one verse where it says, under some subjects and they hated them, they sent a delegate. My first question is like, well, what percentage? Like 5%, 2%, 50%, like how many people don't like this guy? And to the original audience, the hearers of this story, they would have been well familiar with what he was implying or referring to. See, after the death of Herod the Great, uh, his kingdom was divided uh, amongst his three sons. Judah was given to, uh, excuse me, Archelaus. And in order to intimidate the Jews, he had over 3,000 of them slaughtered. Not surprisingly, the people hated him and sent a delegation to appeal to Caesar not to have uh, him as their ruler. By way of compromise, Augustus granted him the right to rule but not to claim the title as king until he had gained the favor of the people, which of course never happened. Soon Archelaus' harsh rule created chaos and the Romans removed him from power. They replaced him with a series of governors uh, one which Pilate, the current one, was the fifth. So they, in, in, the, in the minds of the audience, they have this very recent understanding of exactly how hostile the land was in this parable. We might think this is a cool side note, but this is a hostile environment. They did not want this man to be king, and these servants were going to carry on his work in this territory, we have some recent understanding of what hostile political things could look like. Think of in that environment trying to herald the name of the opposing political opponent in a land that is saturated with those opponents. This is what he's referring to. They thought all the work was behind them. They thought the labor was nearly over all the struggle, all the suffering, all the hardship, but the race was really beginning. The reason why Jesus taught this parable was to help adjust our impatient expectations of how the kingdom will unfold in our lives and in the world around us. He left this as an instruction for those that desire to do his work in his absence so that they may be encouraged in the difficulty that comes with following him. The story was given to us to learn how to teach us how to remain faithful to Jesus while we await the return of Jesus. If you feel like the land is hostile to the work of Jesus and it's scary and intimidating, then this teaching is for you. If you feel like the kingdom is not appearing as quickly as you expected, maybe in your own life or maybe in the world around you, this word was provided by Jesus, preserved through the ages to encourage you. Let's make sure that we have ears to hear this morning. Let's move on to point number two. Let me just start with the fact that this principle or topic has been debated and not everyone agrees. But I do want to share with you why I believe what I believe about what this represents um go ahead and pull up the next slide. I just find this fascinating. The entire canon of scripture is unique to any other book on the planet. It references itself consistently, meaning accurately and systematically over 63,000 times. Go ahead and flip to the next slide. From Genesis to Revelation. Think of like a link on a Google document or in a web page where you can click it and it takes you somewhere else to see the information. The Bible is cross-referencing it. So many times, think of this as like we're in Genesis 3 at the fall. God talks about how the serpent's head will be smashed. And then we go all the way over to here and we see God fulfill that very thing. So throughout scripture, why am I bringing this up? Let me get back to my nuts So long. It is important. There's an interesting phrase in the passage that we're studying today. And it's at the very end, in verse twenty-six, he says, "I tell that uh, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for you, as for who has nothing, even what he has, will be taken away." These words are only uttered by Jesus Himself, and they only appear in a few places in Scripture. Typically. When this Bible is presented in the other gospel, in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the talents uh, has those words spoken by Jesus. And then, again, in Matthew 25, in his, his um, writing of this same parable, he says it, but that's not the first place that these words appear in Scripture. And in uh, Matthew 13, this is the first place where Jesus says this, and I just want to try to connect these dots in this precious book to hopefully reveal some understanding. It's when he's teaching on the parable of the sower and the seed, and he's spoken this truth to this audience, and his disciples pull him aside, and they ask him this question, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And he replies It says this, Disciples came to him and asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replies, he says, The knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. He then continues to teach the disciples about the parable of the sower and the seed, and just stay with me. He talks about how the first seed lands on the path and how the devil snatches that up. He talks about a seed that falls on rocky soil where it is shallow and it spruits up with joy, but as soon as it gets hard, it withers. And he talks about the final seed that lands amongst the thorns that represent the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires of life, and those things choke out the seed. These three seeds that do not reproduce, that do not multiply. And then there's a fourth and final seed. And it lands and it says this. But the one who receives the seed that fell on good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. This is the one that produces a crop yielding 160 and 30 times what is sown. So what what is taken away according to Jesus' instruction in Matthew 13? Or what is given to them? The secrets of the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? The Greek word means mysterion, mystery, hard, hard things to perceive or understand. And then when he's teaching his disciples in that parable, he's basically saying when the truth of God lands and good soil, and what is understood, what it is comprehended. That word in in Greek, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but what it means is to see something, how it actually is in reality. To not just join something together in the mind, to perceive something that is meant to be perceived. So when we understand the revelation of the word of God, that is the secrets to the kingdom. That is the thing that God imparts to us. Let me tr- let me try to help flesh this out a little bit. When I understood that God was real and He was who He said He was, and He did what He said He did, for somebody like me, I had never felt love like that before in my entire life. That is gold that is Mina, that is heaven's currency, that is the secret that God is real and he loved me in my sin, in my imperfection. Or I got worked up a week or so ago and the elders were kind enough to sit me down and have a hard conversation. It was full of love. It was incredibly helpful, but they were picking up on something that I was fearing things. And they asked me some questions and they reminded me that I do not have to live in the spirit of fear, that anything that I am going to go through in life, that the Lord is with me. And as that reality sunk in and my heart began to change, that is gold in the kingdom. I was reminded of the reality of God's kingship and my sonship. Last week we were in staff as Grace was leading it and she was talking about the nature of perfectionism, which I am coming to believe is more of a demonic spirit than anything else. There is nothing perfect in this world except this book on this pulpit. That was gold. It helped me realize that it's not my performance. It's not the quality of something. It is the definition that God has given me that defines me. This is the currency is the the revelation of the love, beauty, mercy, power and perfection of God. It is seeing the person and teach is seeing the person and teachings of Jesus for what it really is. The currency of heaven is understanding that Christ is king, it's understanding that he and he alone holds the teachings of eternal life. The gold that the nobleman gives in this parable is the saving knowledge that Jesus is the son of God, born of a miraculous birth, and that he came to earth to personally make you whole, to save you because he loves you. I believe that this is what Christ is primarily talking about it because he said it in Matthew 13. Now, a lot of people have made the argument about this idea limiting it to the simple act, not the simple act, but the specific act of evangelism. You know, sowing the seeds of God and then landing on good soil and that just the the conversion of people and us us pursuing people, whether it's in the street and, you know, uh, just laying out the truth of God for people. But what if you are not a gifted communicator? What if teaching's not your thing? What if uh, there's a person I'm gonna reference in a moment and by his own words, he says, I'm a very simple man or woman. But what if that? Let's look at the work of Jesus and what he says is his work to get a, a better understanding of what this might be. So point number three, what is the work of our king? Let's look at some biblical examples. Go ahead and pull up the next slide. He preached, he preached the good news. Yeah, got that. All right. Cast out demons. Ooh. Healed the sick. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Raise the dead. Yeah, okay. Uh, turned water into wine. Honestly, I don't think I could do any of that. What else did he do? Go to the next slide. He challenged the self righteous. Uh, you could argue that Nick and Sean did that with me a little while ago. Um, he was kind to foreigners, he prayed for the sick. He loved the money. <laughs> no. He loved, real quick, that's probably in my notes too. He loved the lonely and marginalized. <laughs> it's like, that's not. <laughs> he served people. He washed their feet. That is Freudian. Guys, I can get it when you look at the life of Jesus, you're like, I can't do that. But you can serve. None of us control whether or not if God is going to heal, but you can pray for it. I can't heal, but I can ask God to. I can't raise the dead. Maybe you have faith for that. I do. But I can be kind to foreigners. And I can serve people. Let's look at a pa- passage from Matthew 25 really quick for some other things that Jesus said is his work. Let's find it really quickly. Some interesting things about this thing. So Matthew, his account of this parable is immediately before what I am about to read. Like it says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more. And he, who, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what the little he has will be taken away. And it says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, or separate wicked servants from good servants, or wicked subjects from his servants. And the righteous will reply, Lord, when did we do any of these things for you? When did we give you water when you were thirsty, food when you were hungry, so on and so on. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Refreshing the thirsty, providing nourishment for the hungry, tending to the sick, Inviting in the lonely, visiting those that have literally been removed from society. If we do these things for the least of these brothers and sisters of his, we are doing it for him. I believe one of the biggest lies that the church believes is that evangelism is for professionals. I have a little story I want to share with you about someone I care about a lot. There's a man in my life who is very special to me, who I respect a ton. And when he grew up, he grew up, in his words, being pummeled with scripture. He knew a lot of the Bible and hated most of it. I'm not sure exactly why or how, um, but he came to believe that Christians are hypocritical and that what they claim to believe is not true. And then later in his life, he was going through a divorce um, he had two kids. He's a really big guy, um, and he was driving a Geo Metro. Who remembers those? <laughs> Who knows how many cylinders are in a Geo Metro? Three. Do <laughs> you want to know how many were working in James's car? Two. And so, did life is just coming down on him. He's trying to figure out being a single dad. Uh, his wife or ex-wife was a very real handful um, and his car was barely running and he's like my size but 100 pounds heavier. Um, and he was complaining at work and this quiet coworker just came up beside him and said, hey, I have a little hobby. It's fixing cars and I think I can help you. And his name is James and it's not a secret. He's not James. Um, I just didn't mention his name. He says, dude, I can't pay you anything. He says, it's just a hobby of mine, man. He's like, I got this guy. He gives me parts 30 days later. I, it, can you pay for the parts in 30 days? He goes, yeah, I think I can do that. So flash forward three days. They have been driving he and his kids to and from work and school. Uh, when they get home, the only thing the dude tends to talk about is how good the food is and um, what he's working on his car. It took three days because the part broke, and it's only a $30 part, but it's buried in the center of his engine block. So the dude disassembles his engine and fixes this one thing. And meanwhile, the wife is cooking, taking care of the kids, doing their laundry. And so after three days, he goes, Man, why are you doing this? He says, You know what? I'm a simple man. But this is how God, Jesus, showed me how to serve people. That was his preach, it's the only thing he said and that seed landed on fertile soil. This man went on to visit prisons. He became of an unknown evangelist. This man has led more people to the Lord than I have. And he's also one of the people, James, it's uh, my stepfather-in-law. And along with all the grandparents, some of them are here today, I don't want them to feel left out. This dude tells my boys who they really are in Christ every time he sees them. He just takes this with him wherever he goes. Guys, at the most basic level, we are to sow the love of Christ everywhere we go. This may look like serving water, fixing cars, feeding food performing miracles, preaching sermons. And the Bible says that God has prepared you and me in advance for every work that we will walk in in this life. Showing the love of Christ in and through our lives is the basis of multiplication in the kingdom. If you can't preach, fix cars. If you can preach, preach. If you have faith for healing, if you're just if there's something that you are good at, God has put that in in your hands for his glory. Not sure if you're noticing a theme in how he is leading us. What is in your hand? What can you do with it for my name? All right, one more point. How am I doing? I need to hurry. How do we actually do this? How do we multiply what God has given us? Let's look at what not to do. Please do not do what the wicked servant did. So, when he's confronted, he blames the whole situation on God. This is your fault because I was afraid of you. He treats God like an extortionist or thief. You take out what you don't put in, and you go and you reap where you didn't even sow. You ask too much of me. You're taking from my life that doesn't belong to you. This is too difficult or whatever it may be. And this right here, he has confessed head knowledge in his head, but his life completely lacks any action to back it up. This dude is a fraud, a sham, a goat with sheep's fur on. Why does he he do this? And I have to be honest here, you can only speculate. So just listen cautiously. This is not, this is my opinion. Maybe he did it because he was afraid. The Bible says that. Or maybe he was lying when he said that, who knows. But he says, I was afraid of you. And I want to talk more about that. Maybe he did this because he got discouraged in his impatience and gave up. Maybe he started off well. Maybe it was the the hostility in the land. Maybe his soil was shallow, and as that came, it caused him not to reproduce. Or maybe he didn't think God, he was actually king. He's not coming back. He's not going to be appointed. And if he does, he's not going to have any real authority. Guys, unbelief, yeah, he's not really king. Fear can really mess with us. I was watching Hudson yesterday, and this was, I literally told this to my wife, and I said, I cannot notice this about Huddy without hearing God's voice talk to me. He had a baseball game yesterday. How'd it, how'd it go, bud? First, first part. At the kind of yeah. At the beginning, it was kind of bad, all right? Hudson, like, fielded a ball, like, threw it, and the guy got there just a little early, but he did great, and I watched for, like, the next three innings. Man, I'm just, I'm going to make a mistake, I'm afraid, I don't believe I can do this, I don't believe God's with me. Fear and unbelief can make us do some really stupid things. And I have have to confess something to you guys. A few weeks ago, I momentarily forgot who really was king. I'd gotten discouraged and distracted because of the circumstances around me and scared the you-know-what out of me because I forgot that what the Lord had given me. There are a few things happening right now that have a small possibility to potentially lead to a chain of events that would cause Jacqueline and I to have to leave this state, the one that we love, the one that we adore. Small, small percent. But I had forgotten who holds my life in my hands, and that it took Sean and Nick doing what felt like a very loving and very kind mini-intervention I confessed to the guys when I got back from this trip that we had just taken that I had realized I'd been living in a spirit of fear instead of in the love of Christ. If there is anything I have posted on social media that has offended you, I apologize. I was afraid. That's not an excuse. That's an explanation. Mercy Commons, I apologize for what I've posted on social media. It has been an unhelpful distraction to this community. It was just, I was just really afraid, and I'm sorry for giving in to fear. You deserve better than that. So what do we do? We do not let impatience, circumstance, fear, or unbelief guide the work and purposes of our life. We should follow the example of the faithful servant's. So what does it say in verse 17? And I love this. It's here in the text. I just want to bring this out. So he says, well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. A very small matter. What does that mean? Go ahead and pull it up. Smallest or least. In size, amount, and management of affairs of importance, and authority, and rank, or excellence, and the smallest details of our lives. I'm not trying to preach perfectionism or anything, but when the alarm goes off and you feel that the Lord wants you to get up, get out of bed. When the alarm is going off and you genuinely, Maybe you've been running long and hard for a long time and you actually need to resist work and you need to rest. Well, like, will you do that? If the Lord shows you a small little thing to do, just this one person, they drop something, go pick it up for them. You have no idea what kind of a day they're having. Or maybe how we speak to one another, how we think, just these, these moments of our life. And that word there where it says you have been trustworthy, the word is pistos. And in the Old Testament, it means of a person who shows themselves faithful in the transactions of business, the execution of command, or the discharge of official duties. But in the New Testament, it tends to mean one who trusts in the promises of God. What this is instructing us to do is that in the smallest moments of our life, to remember to trust God. As opposition, as the kingdom appears one way, as churches close and shrink, as chaos happens around us, we don't worry about the big picture. We worry about what is God asking us to do right now. Ben, you can join me up here. <sighs> Guys, I am somewhat, and I, I make mistakes. I've been really, really messed with with fear over the last couple of years. This text has been an absolute kindness to me. It's been a, an incredible reminder. It's been an anchor. Um, but I do have some experience with suffering. The two things I've kind of committed my life to, the first one is the advancement of God's kingdom. The second thing I'm really passionate about is about CrossFit. I almost won a whole sermon without mentioning it. <laughs> they always talk about it. <laughs> Guys, there is a workout we do every year. It's called Murph. We do it on Memorial Day. It's a one-mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and another mile run with a weight vest. Cool. Eight minutes in, you're like, I want this to be over. You know. So you finish your 300th air squat. Nothing in your body feels good. I'm talking like muscle discomfort. We never push through joint pain. I'm serious. And then you go to run a mile. And it's typically on a hot day. There's no water breaks on the way out. And literally what fills my mind is a couple things. Hero workouts are done in remembrance of the person who laid their life down. There's always someone in service, some first responder. Um, This is the guy. They made the movie out of Lone Survivor. Um, And when I start that run, I just try to say thank you for his sacrifice. And how I do that is one step at a time. And as my mouth is dry, as I can hear every hot breath come out of my body, and as I feel the weight of this vest that I'm honestly getting claustrophobic in at this point, literally, I breathe, I remember, and I take another step. When things get hard, we remember that God is faithful. We trust in God's promises, and we apply those to the smallest areas of our thoughts of our minds and our life so that we are not distracted by fear so that we don't fall into patterns of unbelief and so that we can finish the race that God has laid out for us. We meditate and revel on the love of God that is shown to us in Christ. That is the currency of the kingdom, Jesus' love. You can have the most powerful prophetic gift in the world or prayers that can move mountains, but if you lack love, you have nothing. The cool thing is that as we do this, it empowers us to demonstrate and to proclaim his power, whether it's serving children, fixing cars, or preaching a great message. And, guys, remember care more about who you are becoming than where you will end up in life. Wealth and comfort are not our promise. But as we are faithful with the smallest matters of our life, we will begin to grow in the likeness of Christ. Every decision does not shape our fate. We are in Christ. But it does affect the legacy we will leave in his name. Jesus, I want to thank you for this community. They are precious. Lord, I want to thank you that you've given us everything we need to run this race. And Lord, above all things, help us to fix our gaze upon you so that we can bring you glory, not just in the big moments, but in every moment of our life. And so, Father, as we fail, help us to try and try again. Help us to believe in your sacrifice and to take one more step at a time, in the name of Jesus.
0: Thanks, Neil. We're going to do things a little differently. Um, Usually we respond in song, but one of the things I'd like to do is for us to respond to what Neil is saying immediately at the table and then come and uh, respond in song. One of the things, the postures uh, that are going to be important as we go to the table is this understanding. No one has nothing. Uh, Even that servant that felt like he was shortchanged had something, uh, because our God is kind and gives everyone something. And one of the things that He has given us as a remembrance this morning is His body and His blood, which enable us to be active participants in the kingdom. So as Jeremy and the team just play uh, without, without singing, we, uh, we're gonna get up, go to the table, come back, and we will take communion together. The song we're about to sing says, what king would take a low and lonely birth? Not only did our king take a low and lonely birth, but he lived the kind of life we cannot live on our own and died the death that brings us new life. That day when he met with his disciples, he took the bread, blessed it and said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. He took the cup, he said, this is the blood of a new covenant this means that you never have to be ashamed or afraid because you are always welcome at the Father's table to recognize him as a kind and gracious king this is my blood drink Jesus I want to thank you Thank you for your birth, your life, your death, and your resurrection. I want to thank you that each and every one of us has been given something. I want to thank you that you are not the kind of man that that lost servant said you were. I want to thank you that you are kind and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. I also want to thank you that what you've called us to do, to multiply the things of the kingdom. You've not called us to do it alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us your body. I want to thank you that there is joy as we multiply the kingdom. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.